You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. We were overseas when the Mr. Bean phenomenon hit the world. Didn't know what it was. I was on a plane flight and something took place that I had never seen before. I didn't really understand it. But uh, I didn't even have the headphones on. I wasn't listening to music or watching any movies. I was uh, just probably uh, looking after our, our four kids or sharing the load with Bron. But as I looked around the plane, I just saw this, this laughter. It's just chuckling everywhere. And, of course, you've got the noise of the plane and headphones on, but people's heads were, were just sort of nodding forward and that sort of thing, and there was nudging and all sorts of things. I had never seen an entire plane load of people laughing together. And so I start looking around thinking, what is it? What is it? You know, is the pilot dressed as a clown? Actually, that wouldn't be funny, would it? But, but I was trying to work out what is going on here. And so finally we, we get everybody settled and and, and the kids found it first, and, uh, and we tune in to, to Mr. Bean. We realize that more than half the plane load of people are watching Mr. Bean. And I don't remember which particular episode of it was, but soon we were doing exactly the same as everybody else. We were laughing our heads off. He was just a very, very funny character. And I guess part of his humor and why it is so universal is he taps into those those funny, quirky little things that we can all relate to. I I remember one just cringing, and it wasn't one of the ones in church or something, but I remember cringing as uh, he was at the swimming pool on one occasion. And he climbs up the, to the high board. And we've all done it. In our, in our youth, I think, we've, we've all kind of looked at the challenge of these various staged diving boards. And we kind of felt, particularly if you're a guy, I mean, your reputation is at stake here. You can't just uh, go to level number one. No, 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 no. Not with all of those girls over at the side watching. No, 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 this is going to require at least a level two. And if I... If I can do it, maybe even a level three diving board plunge. And so, um, foolhardy as I, as I was, maybe still am, I remember going up to level three. And this is a guy who is not delighted about heights. And I recall getting up there and just wondering, how can I back out of this situation? I had no idea. You know, from, from down there, it didn't look so high. From up here, it's about five times as high as what that sign just said. And I remember trying to work out, how do you back out of this? I'm up here, and, and there looked like only one way down. There's this queue of people behind you, and, and everyone had exactly the same look of no zero tolerance for cowards. And so kind of you, you, you just pushed into this, into this uh, dilemma. And, of course, Mr. Bean uh, finds, his, finds his way off the board, I think, through a, through a classic fall. And I don't think my departure was, was much better. The problem is, you see, the higher you go, the more that, that contact point with the water is, is going to hurt. And it seems that the same can be for our reputation. It doesn't matter when God blesses us and... And this could be as a church or as an individual, but, but one of the fears, and I guess we're pretty good at this in Australian culture, aren't we, with our egalitarian attitude, um, but the higher we go and the higher our reputation goes, of course, the further we have to fall. 
and the more it is ultimately going to hurt. So, as good Australians, we just, we just fall off the side of the pool into the water, don't we? we? We discourage actually climbing heights at all. And it seems that in the book of Joshua, this was one of the things that Israel faced. We, we finished off, gee, it was over a month ago now, wasn't it? But, but do you remember the story of Jericho? And do you remember us exploring that together? And, well, we, we finished that story. We got to chapter 6, and the very last verse, 27, says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. His reputation went to great heights. What's the problem? Well, the higher you go, the more it is going to hurt when you fall. Chapter 7, verse 1, starts with the word, but. So we know what's coming, don't we? So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Joshua, chapter, chapter 7, and let's read about the story of Achan's sin. And we're going to ask a couple of questions and hopefully answer a few along the way. And, uh, and hopefully we will agree together that um, stoning one another is not a good thing. But there are probably some other little discoveries that we can, we can make along the way. But the danger of reputation... You know, really, as you're, as you're finding this passage in your, in your Bibles, Joshua chapter 6 and 7, really, it is, it is quite phenomenal that God would even risk this. Don't you think it's a rather daring plan of his that he would use you and I? Really? I mean, maybe not, maybe not you, but me, me. What a risk. What a risk that God would attach his reputation to mere mortals. Why? Why would he do that? We both know, we all know how risky that is. Imagine, imagine someone of great fame in today's society saying, I'm going to attach my reputation to you. You would just tremble at the knees, wouldn't you? Say, Please don't do that. <laughs> you know, I know I am going to, I am going to disappoint you. It's a, one of the aspects of leadership that is forever before me. Basically, I, I have a sequence of decisions that I have to make on any given day, in any given month, in any given year, that is ultimately going to disappoint people. Uh, our, our human fragility is huge. Why would God dare associate himself with us? But he does. He did with Joshua and he did with, with Israel. Let's read together and see if we can glean some understanding. We're actually just going to read half of this, this passage from verse, verse 7, just the first five verses initially. And we'll come back to some of this. And we may, well, in fact, we will. We'll revisit the, the second half of this passage next week. So there will be, be something there for us. I just want you to keep coming back each week. That's why I always keep a little bit of scripture in reserve. So chapter... Chapter 7, verse, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zena. So there's, there's absolutely no doubt who Achan is. That Achan. Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of those devoted things, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, to the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the region. 
Now, this is just, side note, this is just due diligence. They're just doing what they did with Jericho, and, and this, is just, this is just good leadership here. And so, go, go spy out land. So the men went up, and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, well, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. This is a terrible setback. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And we'll come back to to that in, in a few moments. Interestingly, in verse 1, we read, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, but it was Achan who actually took them. And so we firstly note that, that Israel is guilty by association with Achan. Yes, it was Achan's sin, but the whole nation, therefore, was guilty. Now, does that actually flow over to how things work today. Well, if not literally, no, I don't think that's quite true, but we do have to acknowledge that one person's sin has a role on effect, doesn't it? Truth is that, that any one of us here can sin. We can rebel against God. We can do something that we know we shouldn't do. It might be thought. It might be word. It might be deed. But the truth is the repercussions will not be in isolation. There will be a roll-on effect. All of the community gets affected by our sin. So, so it is one of the encouragements for why we would pursue righteousness. It's a good thing for the body of Christ. And so here is this sense in which one person has sinned, but the whole nation is affected. It has a roll-on effect. And it brings Joshua to to ask the question that we were just asking a minute minute ago in verse 7, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan? Why, God? Why did you choose me? Have you ever been at a place of desperation like that before? You know God has called you. He's saved you. He's, He's called you to be his own. Come, follow me. And then somewhere along the line, we've disappointed him. And you have thought to yourself, I... I'm not up for this. I'm not good enough. I I don't know what it is about me or my past that is different from other Christians who seem to be, you know, on 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 a more successful trajectory in the Christian life, but there's something about me that is different. Why, God, why, why, why did you choose me? Why did you call me to this? I'm not up for the task. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever just thought, God, when he chose you, made one of these biggest bloopers? Maybe you have, and you would be in good company. And there is an answer to that question, which we're going to discover shortly. But Joshua asks the question, why? Oh, God, why did you bring us as a nation across the Jordan River? Why did you attach your reputation to us? Look, 
we're going to be slaughtered. We're going to be a laughingstock. That reputation we once had, that we're untouchable, nobody and nothing can stand against us, people's hearts were melting in fear, that's shot, that's gone. Now we're a laughingstock. This small town just embarrassed, humiliated our nation. Everybody will find out about this. Oh, why? Why did you do this to your great name? To understand this, we, we need to delve into a little bit about these devoted things. That's the, that's the modern English translated. It means things to be consecrated or given over to the Lord irrevocably by, by utter destruction. It could be persons or things. And that was the Lord's direct command when it came to Jericho. Now, why? What is it about these devoted things? What was it about the things in Jericho? Were there silver cups and plates somehow very, very different to those in the city of Ai? Were, were, were somehow their cattle and their sheep and the women and children, were those things very, very different to, to that which they would encounter in other cities? No. Why was it that all of those things in Jericho had to be given irrevocably to the Lord, that nothing could be taken? Why? What was different about that? Was it that God needed them? The God in heaven needing a, a little silver plate or cup? Did he need a sword? Did he need a javelin? Did he need a tent? Did he need a sheep? Did he need a wife or a child? Did he need any of these things? No. So why were they given over to the Lord? Why did these things have to be devoted to him in the first place? Why couldn't Achan just take a little for himself? What other nation goes to war and doesn't reward its soldiers with a few of the spoils? Was it such a big deal for Achan, son of a slave, a nomad in the desert, a no one who had nothing. Was it such a big deal for him to take a little and hide it in his tent? Well, interestingly, we have an insight into this in the next chapter, chapter 8. On this occasion, having got past this issue of Achan's sin, the Lord said to Joshua, now you are actually ready to, to take on the, the city of Ai. Don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Well, that's different. With Jericho, it was all for God. With the city of Ai, you can actually keep the plunder and the livestock for yourselves. Why the difference? What's going on? Well, Jericho, on the west side of the Jordan, was the very first city that Israel would confront. Therefore, what belonged in that city were the first fruits of the land. The land was God's gift to the nation. It was God said, that's, that's what God had always promised that, hadn't he? I, I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you the whole lot to it. And it's not going too far to imagine that, that all, of the, all of the fruit and the, 
and the benefits and the blessings of the land would be Israel's as well. But Jericho was different. It's the first town, the first city, and therefore it represented the first fruits. Now, God himself didn't need anything in Jericho as his possession. Why? Because he's God. Yes, but why? Why else? Because he already had what he wanted. The possession that God was after was Israel. We read in Moses' song, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. It's repeated again and again and again throughout Scripture. Just in the book of Deuteronomy, we read it in chapter 4, verse 20. We read it in chapter 9, verse 29. God's possession is his people, Israel. God wanted them. He wanted their heart. He wanted their devotion. He wanted the nation of Israel to be his precious possession. And the first fruits was the way in which they would keep their hearts pure and be wholeheartedly God's possession. God was after the nation. He was after Israel. That's what he wanted. He didn't need any of the goods or chattels of the land. He didn't need the land itself. That was his gift to Israel. What did he want in return? He wanted their heart. He wanted Israel's heart. And by giving the first fruits to God, they were able to demonstrate their devotion to the giver, not the gift. I tell you, in this life, we will always struggle with that issue. We will always struggle to keep our heart pure before God and to ensure that we are devoted to the giver not the gifts. How often we can fall into that trap of seeking the blessings, of seeking the gifts that God gives us. They, of course, are just demonstrations of the love of the giver. Our hearts should always belong to the giver, not the gifts. The principle of first fruits is really all about guarding your heart. And the principle of first fruits when it came to Jericho was to, to guard the heart of the nation. I am going to lead you into a land of promise. I am going to let you see things that you've never seen before. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. Your flocks are going to thrive. Your crops will thrive. You will thrive. When you follow me, there is so much blessing. But be careful that your heart is not led astray by that. Always seek after the giver, not the gifts. And giving of the first fruits to God was a way in which they could preserve a pure heart. 
of making sure that they were wholeheartedly devoted to God. Tithing is that. When you think about it, giving back to God, what ultimately belongs to him anyway, tithing is just that. It's, it's a provision by the Lord to keep your heart pure. Does that cross your mind when the bag is passed from one hand to another or you check your statement and you notice the direct debit, you know, go through to the, to the church or wherever it is that you give your tithe? Does that cross your mind? Oh, thank you, Lord. Yes, there's a practical element to it. As I say, it keeps the lights on. It keeps, keeps the heater running. It, it keeps me fed. Hopefully not too well. There's a practical element to all of this. It keeps, it keeps the missionary activity that is so close to our heart. It keeps it all going. There's many, many practical benefits to this. But did you think every time that you give of your first fruits, oh, thank you, Lord, for keeping my heart pure. Thank you, Lord, for guarding my heart. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to ensure that I love you more than your blessings. That's what it's about. That's what the provision is there for. It's to keep your heart pure. God doesn't need our money. Now, you might object, Stuart, if we all stopped giving today, this church would grind to a halt. And you are absolutely right. It would but not for want of money. It's about the heart. It's always about the heart. God is after your heart. Was it the Bee Gees who sang, How Deep Is Your Love? Was it a Bee Gees song? I think it was, wasn't it? You know, sometimes God leads us into places of want, places of loss, I remember years ago, like anyone, and it doesn't matter whether you're a missionary here or a missionary serving God overseas through faith, we all have to have our heart tested when it comes to finances. Really, all of us. The Bible says a lot about finances. And when we left Australia to go and serve God in the US, um, the Australian dollar was not doing so well. It would buy 50 US cents. So we left Australian shores 100% supported and arrived 50% supported. <laughs> lots, of, lots of stories I could, I could tell you about God's goodness. But the time of probably sheer brokenness for Bron and I was probably within a few months we had two, two situations. One in which... Uh, we got a notice from the school saying that the school photos would cost $2. $2. Now, most of us who are parents, if we got a note from school saying that the school photos would cost $2, we'd just be rubbing our hands in glee, wouldn't we? Two bucks? You're kidding. I'll buy the lot. You know, but we couldn't afford the $2. And the embarrassing thing was trying to explain to the kids, or not, Try to get around the fact that actually we don't have the $2 for the school photo right now. 
And then as we approached Christmas, uh, there was nothing under the Christmas tree. And I wouldn't claim it as a right, but I think it's a want of every parent, isn't it? I mean, we'd, we'd never made any pretense, young children, shut your ears, about Santa Claus, never did that thing. It was always about celebrating Jesus. But Jesus has a little bit of a gift to you from his parents. And so that was kind of the... And we just wanted to put something under the tree, but there was nothing. And we, nothing we could do about it. And that was probably when I think about, you know, how how tough things have gotten for the Hunt household financially. That is probably about, yeah, the, as bad as it got. But it took us to a place where we were deeply and sweetly dependent upon God. You know, it is only in times of deep loss that we can truly answer the question, Will you still love me? God loves to test our heart. And, and it is when we are in that place of loss, sometimes grief, sadness, even impoverishment, it is when we don't have something that God can come to us and ask the question, Yes, I see what is going on. I do. I have eyes to see. I know what's going on. All my promises are just as real now in this situation as they ever have been. But here's my question. Despite your current experience, despite the loss, will you still love me? And there is a purity to the answer to that question in the context of loss that we cannot experience at any other time. So if you're in a time of loss or you're in a time of deep despair, don't let the moment go by. Don't let this be wasted. Hear the Lord speak into this. Yes, I see what you were going through. Nonetheless, will you still love me? I was asking Bron, wow. Jesus said, wherever your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What treasures have we had in our life that have threatened to tear our heart away from God? We started to list them. Wow, family obligations to or loyalty to family above God, one another. I recall when we got married, 
promising to one another that there would be one greater love in our lives, respectively, than each other. And that would be God. And that was the most precious thing that we could give to, to either, either of us. So family, spouse, jobs, reputation. Oh, the list could go on. The number of treasures that have, that have sought to place themselves in between us and God. To steal our heart away. We face them, you face them as well. But as we surrender these things to God, whether it be a weekly tithe, whether it be jobs and reputation and loved ones, whatever it might be, our house, privilege of living here in Australia, whatever it might be, as we surrender those things to God, I believe he comes to us and he says, thank you. But remember, what I really want is your heart. It's always about your heart. And that's what was going on here with the nation of Israel. I love Joshua's response. Verse 6, Joshua tore his clothes. He fell face down to the ground. The elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Verse 7, and Joshua said, Oh, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Remember, close of chapter 6, their fame had spread. Now, in just a few opening verses of chapter 7, our name will be wiped out from the earth. But that's not what bothers Joshua most. Look at this. How precious is this? What then will you do for your own great name. That's Joshua's concern. That's his heart. That's what troubles him most. We'll be routed by the enemies. We'll be disgraced. Our name will be nothing. But what about your name? Oh, Lord, what about your name? That's... What is most horrid about all of this? Joshua's lament is about the defamation to the Lord's great name. As Israel is guilty by association with Achan, so the Lord's name is guilty by association with Israel. Um, years ago, I was on the board of Christian Surfers International and, and a new member came onto the board. His name was Eric Awakara and uh, he's, he's Hawaiian. 
and he's uh, one of the world's top surfboard shapers. Now, he was the most lovely, humble guy you would ever meet. His name, Eric Awakara Designs, is on surfboards all over the world. In fact, when um, he donated one to some friends of ours um, because uh, she was dying of cancer and wanted to buy her brother a surfboard, and Eric donated a surfboard to her and to give to her brother, and, and it got a little bit of a ding in the nose on the way shipping to Australia. So they took it to a, a, a repair place uh, here, a surfboard shop over in in Northcote, I think it was, and they took it into the shop. These were specialists in surfboard repairs. And they're looking at this thing, and they've, they've never seen, because it's not sold in Australia, they've never seen an Eric Awakara original. It's got his signature on it and all of his pencil markings because it's custom made. And, uh, and they're just staring at it saying, where'd you get this? He said, oh, you know, my friend's friend, friend knows, knows Eric. You know the man? Oh, yeah, well, my, my, my dad's friend knows the, the... You know the man? And apparently they were all leaving their customers and coming over to, to, just, to just drool over this Eric Awakawa surfboard. I mean, that's his name in surfing circles. It's famous. Uh, 2002, Andy Irons, um, who was yet to win a world championship, took one of Eric's, Eric's surfboards. Took it, took it out to um, the pipeline there, and, um, and he won his first ever world championship on an Eric Awakara surfboard. Now, because Eric's name was on it, as he was doing his flips and twirls on the waves, there was Eric's name. As he won the championship, Eric's name was just elevated. I guess they're the heights for a surfboard maker, aren't they? If you win a world championship and you happen to be on Eric's board, well, that's good for Eric's name. But if you happen to be on a reef break and if you happen to get broken by the reef and you walk in off the shore with a broken board and it's got Eric's name on it as well, then that also takes Eric's name to depths of, of shame. Why? Because, well, this board didn't perform as it was supposed to. And I guess Israel were facing a little bit of the same. Joshua was thinking, we didn't perform the way we were supposed to, but it was your name written across the nation. We stood on your name, and that's great when we get elevated to wonderful heights, so does your name. But when we disappoint you, when we don't perform as expected, it's your name that goes with us. It is a sense, you know, in which this is the great risk that God takes. Nothing quite elevates the name of God like our devotion to God. And when we fail in that devotion to God. Nothing can defame him in quite the same manner. That is why God is after the heart, always the heart. He's after your heart. He's after your devotion. It's why the principle of the first fruits and, and making sure that, that our treasure is always the giver, not the gift, because it's about our heart. When we don't 
perform as expected. It's the name of God. It's his name that is defamed. But here's the interesting thing. When we are wholeheartedly devoted to God, when we do stand firm in our faith, when we stand strong against all of the odds, when in our weakness and our brokenness and our loss, there's no one else to turn to but him. The world looks on and in bewilderment, they wonder, how is it that you are still holding on to your faith? You are still standing by that God of yours. You are still clinging to him despite what's happening in your life. You are not performing as expected. And it's true. There's only one explanation why anyone would do that. It's because God is performing as expected. And he is holding us firm in the storm. So that, amidst it all, we can sing genuinely, Despite it all, it is well with our soul. That elevates the name of God like nothing else. Nothing elevates the name of God like our devotion to God. For then, our God is seen for who he really is. He's glorified. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word. That it is all about the heart. You just want our heart. We are your possession. We are all you've ever wanted. Here we are, a people surrounded by blessings, and it's so easy to be distracted by them. But we're reminded once more this morning, it's about the giver. It's about you. You just want our heart. Lord, as we celebrate the gift of your Son, we think of your blood, which was shed for us, which has washed away every reason why we should ever feel alienated to you. You have cleansed us from all unrighteousness, having forgiven all sin. And through your broken body, Lord, 
you have reminded us that we too are now crucified with you. The old us is gone and the new has come. Christ who now lives within us. So much to celebrate. And now we're free to do it. Free to celebrate you. Free to be yours. Free to give you our heart. And free to do so wholeheartedly. As we take these elements and as we celebrate your blood that was shed, your body that was broken, Lord, we, we want to take them and we want to say to you, we belong to you. We are yours. You have our heart. You have our full devotion. I'm coming back to you. I long for you. And I want you to know it. Lord, we want that to be the cry of our heart as we take these symbols today. Would you please hear our heart on this? Would you know that we are returning to you wholeheartedly and giving you all of us, even as you have given your son. We thank you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.